Well, good morning, everyone. It is a good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will be rejoicing and be glad in it. And one of the reasons for that is that we are pressing on into the study of the book of Romans. I remember uh, when I really began uh, to be blessed by the daily devotionals of C.H. Spurgeon, who I still make company with most days. And our pastor at the time, Bill Marsh, when I talked with him about this, said, yes, Spurgeon is just stout. He's for the stout-minded. Spurgeon, Spurgeon gives us a manly devotional, he said to me. Um, and by manly, uh, he didn't mean for men only. He meant it's just rigorous. I remember as a boxer, uh, those two words that you kind of love and you kind of dread when somebody says, let's go. And when you approach the devotionals of Spurgeon, it's as if he's saying, let's go further up and further in to a right-sized view of man in relation to the glory of God. And uh, Romans is very much like that as well. Here in the midst of Scripture, we have one book that is like a condensed summary of the whole book given to us, and it's as if Paul says to the believers in Rome and says to us, let's go. It is rigorous. It is stout. It is um, intense. It is so packed with the richness of theology, of gospel, of scripture, that many people actually try to stay away from Romans because it intimidates them a bit. Um, may it never be so with us. This is a, a book uh, so rich, it's like a treasure chest uh, inviting us to take up its riches. We are starting today in Romans chapter 1. We're going to be moving expositionally through the whole book in the coming weeks. Very excited about doing that. Some of you um, know that we are dividing this first chapter into two parts. Uh, the first part has been referenced as God's righteousness, um, and the second part has to do with man's unrighteousness. I grew up with a father who, on occasion when I would ask him for advice, would say, do you want the good news first or the bad news? Um, in Romans chapter 1, we are getting first the good news, and then the chapter ends with some bad news. And the good news in a word, is Christ. Christ is God's righteousness to Paul and to those chosen, 
and those faithful. Christ is God's righteousness to us and for us. So if we look at chapter 1 and begin with verse 1 and look at the opening section, which in most of your Bibles is referred to as the greeting, uh, we see effectively a manifesto of identity. Paul is going to start by confirming his identity, and in doing this, you'll see he ends up inviting all of his readers, including us this day, to confirm our identity. And in the second section, you'll see that we move to a manifesto of gratitude. And in the third section of this first part of chapter one, um, he ends with a manifesto of proclamation. And so let's start by reading this first section together, um, Paul's greeting. The apostle says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to consider the first piece of this greeting where Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, because the word that he uses here, uh, as R.C. Sproul uh, explains very eloquently in the book that some of you are reading and that I recommend to you, called The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, an exposition on Romans by Sproul, makes the point that the word used here is doulos, which literally means bondservant, literally means at this time slave. And Sproul says that this idea of it being a servant or a bondservant really is not strong enough. That the goodness of this introduction from Paul saying, I, Paul, a slave uh, to Christ is, um, is critical. It's critical for all kinds of reasons. There's irony because as we move through this chapter, Paul will make the point that we are slaves to sin. And what Paul is saying is, I have been made a slave from sin to something else. There is also an irony here, Sproul says, when Christ sets us free from slavery to the flesh, to sin, he calls us to, and I love this phrase, I hope this will electrify you this morning, he calls us to the royal liberty 
of slavery to him. And listen where he goes here. He says, that is why we call him master. We acknowledge that it is from him that we get our marching orders. He is the Lord of our lives. We are not our own. We are not autonomous. We're not independent. Unless people understand the relationship to Christ in these terms, that we have moved from being slaves to sin to slaves to Christ, they remain unconverted, Sproul says. Strong words. But that's how Paul begins his letter. To the hearer, he would have been understood to have been making the point that he is a slave to Christ. Um, And that piece of identity matters. He goes on to say, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. All of us are given spiritual gifts. Not all of us are called to be apostles. Some people think that the disciples in the New Testament were apostles, but the apostles were called out of the disciples. There were many disciples that were a part of Jesus' um, ministry and training. Uh, There were 12 apostles And Paul was one of them. Ironically, Paul was one of them even though he did not pass all three marks of apostleship. You might remember that the apostles were picked from those who were in the company of Christ or those who um, bore witness to the resurrected Christ, but also those who were specifically called by Christ and Paul was one of those who was called by Christ directly on the road to Damascus, as you remember, and was in that set apart for the gospel of God. That word um, set apart is one that comes to us right away as a part of identity. If we are a slave to Christ, we are set apart. Ecclesia. Uh, literally, as you know, the Greek word for church comes from two root words, kaleo, which is to call, and ek, which is out of. So we are called out of uh, the world of which we are part. We are set apart for the gospel of God. It is part of our identity. If as you are working with people, as you are meeting people, I had somebody pull out in front of me this morning on the way to church, (laughs) and they drove 10, 12 miles an hour under the posted speed limit the whole way down 68, and I was literally processing this passage. (laughs) It's very easy to blend in and be... and, and be not called out not set apart in the world in which we're apart. If we do not have the unique aroma of Christ that prompts people to sniff out the fact that we are perhaps followers of him in the places and spaces that we're in, we need to be considering whether or not our identity as slaves to Christ has taken root 
these words are just a great challenge uh, to me, and I hope that they are to you as well. And I think that's Paul's point in saying, I have come to understand, wretch that I am, the identity that I have been given, the new identity being called from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ in a way that makes me called out separate, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this is really interesting. He goes immediately, Paul does, goes immediately to the rootedness of the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, he's saying this Christ to whom I am a slave, this Christ is the one who was foretold to us in the Old Testament. This rooting, of course, is important because many of the listeners were Jews who understood the Old Testament, um, and he wanted to be clear that this is good news, but it's not really new news. This is um, important for us to consider today when we have teachers like Andy Stanley writing best-selling books, making statements like this. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reading back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. That's the problem. Stanley goes on to say, that the church has lost its mojo and these vestiges of the old covenant have led to a variety of vices in the church like prosperity gospel, the crusades, anti-Semitism, exclusivism, legalism, judgmentalism, and more. Thus, Stanley offers a clear call to church leaders. Would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant, to which we offer a resounding no. no. In fact, (laughs) that was very good. In fact, I'm going to ask um, one of you with Bible open just to turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 27, um, just to give one example of how foolish this line of thinking is. Indeed, Christ himself, so often, when brought to moments of reckoning with the people he was teaching and leading, did what? He went to the Old Testament to affirm the things that he was bringing to fullness. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 is an example of this. Steve, do you have that? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus uh, did the very thing that Andy Stanley is telling us not to do in the name of Jesus. Um, It's um, a stunning thing. Uh, So what is being shared here by Paul is, of course, concerning his son, who was descended from David, 
according to the flesh. This again is an affirmation of the same point. I will never forget being at the church in Bethlehem and standing in front of a board as big as this wall that shows the lineage of Christ. Why is the lineage of Christ so important? Because it highlights the fact that the gospel is rooted in historicity, that the scriptures are given us by the Lord of history. This is not a story outside of history meant to inspire us. This is the story behind all good stories. And so it matters that Paul is reminding his listener that this is the great story behind all good stories. And as it was foretold, as it was promised, this is true that Christ descended from David according to the flesh as it was promised and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying here, among other things, by what evidence do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's reminding us by the evidence of his resurrection. Um, Can you look up, since you're close, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, while we consider um, this important point. He's saying something was declared, and that something that was declared was attested. It was attested by the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, um, here's what we read. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this point is a point made not just here, but um, elsewhere throughout the scriptures. The resurrection is the surety of the thing um, being declared. Then Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You can see why Romans is intimidating for some because there's just so much packed, not just into each sentence, but into each clause. Thank you, there's an English teacher here. Into each clause in the statement. But I just want to pull out one piece of one clause in this statement that was a game changer to me when I first saw it. And Paul uses it here, he uses it elsewhere. It almost seems like it's an oxymoron, the combination of these words, but he talks about the obedience of faith. 
Isn't that interesting? The obedience of faith. It's interesting that our commentary is from R.C. Sproul. When I was a college lad at Grove City College, his son was a sweet mate, and I had no idea who R.C. Sproul was. As a student, um, this was one of my first days there on campus, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed college student. And I heard in the common room, round a table not much bigger than this, this laughter. And it was clearly not a collegiate student's laughter. It was coarse and rough, and, but just fulsome. And I went over to the room to see what was going on, and there were just a bunch of students packed in, and this guy was sitting in a chair at that little round table. And I remember, like yesterday, what he said when I came walking in the room. Because as I came walking in the room, he said, works do not save us, but saving faith works. And then, he, and then it, like the whole room was quiet like that. And then he said, with gratitude. Not because you have to, but because you get to. It's, it's like the Heidelberg, right? The concept that if we understand the depth of our guilt and we joy in the grace that covers it, we then live out of gratitude. And if we don't live out of gratitude, we should, if, if we're working just doing what we gotta do to act like Christians, then we probably don't get part one or part two. And that's why the Heidelberg is such a powerful catechism uh, in my view, is that it emphasizes the linkage between understanding our guilt and the grace that covers it in a way that if you really get part one and two spills out into lives of gratitude. We get to, we don't have to because we get it. The reformers called it the triple knowledge. Guilt, grace, gratitude. My kids called it the three G's. (laughs) Then he says this. He turns now, after establishing his identity, to those he's writing to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is classic R.C. Sproul, by the way, processing this passage. He says this, What are you called to be? To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, that is your vocation. What are you studying? I'm studying to be a saint. Do you think that will ever happen? It has already happened if you are in Christ. You are already numbered among the saints. It almost makes me teary-eyed. The word for saint in the New Testament is the word that means sanctified one, one who has been set apart by the Holy Spirit and called inwardly by Christ to himself. If you put your trust in Christ, you are right now a saint. 
You are set apart. You are part of the invisible church, which is beloved of God. Some of you need especially to hear that today. And isn't it amazing that through God's providence, we're reminded of it this day through these words from the Apostle Paul written so many centuries ago. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The, um, the words that were used by the Jews when they greeted one another, um, some of you know this because you have Jewish friends, shalom aleichem, which is peace be unto you, and the response is to reverse those words, aleichem shalom, which means police, peace also to you. But when you think about the words of benediction, including the, this Hebrew benediction that runs across the centuries, these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul uses over and over in his letters, should remind us of words like these. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's what Paul is saying at the conclusion of his greeting. <clears throat> One thing I just want to bring to your attention as you read through a little passage like this is a sort of paradigm. And I actually just took a snapshot of it out of my journal. Um, but I want to share it with you. Paul is inviting us to consider a dance in his writings. The dance is a dance between chicken scribble, chicken scribble, chicken scribble. <laughs> Sorry for my rough penmanship. But the dance is between orthodoxy and orthopraxy that helps us understand orthokresis Orthodoxy, the things that we believe that inform orthopraxy, the way that we live lives, so that when we are in moments of decision, we make the right choices. And that is gospel life. And in a passage like the one that we just read, Paul's continually taking us back to all of these things, you know, where he's saying, if you understand your identity as a slave to Christ then you are going to live as one called apart and you will know what it is to experience peace when you're making that difficult decision. We had a child um, this week who brought to us news that they had a tumorous um, like growth in a place you don't want to have tumorous like growths. And as you can imagine, we um, ran that into the medical um, system as fast as we could to get clear insight in terms of what was going on. And <clears throat> the doctor 
that he met with first was a friend, and this was Friday afternoon. By the time that we got him in to see this doctor, and I had talked with the doctor beforehand, I knew that my son had left, so I sent him a text saying, what are, what are your thoughts? And <clears throat> I got two words back, very concerned, and found out that he had sent him right to um, ER for a battery of scans and so forth. Um, it appears after all of that um, that it's good news, it's operable, benign, etc. We were praising God on Friday night and just thanking him for his mercies. But as my son came to me before he went to the doctor's appointment, sharing with me how Spurgeon's devotional that morning as part of his scripture reading had blessed his soul and fortified him for the day, he um, came into my library and he held me and uh, he wept as um, he held me. And then we prayed together and we reminded each other of those basic things that we believe that inform how we live when we're facing different moments of decision and challenge. And it's interesting to me that orthokresis, the the, the, the process of making right choices has in it that root word, crisis. And good theology, as I consider even some of you in this room who know this very well, good theology is most important in preparing each of us for suffering. And each of us for glory. So, onward we go. Oh my. Longing to go to Rome, Paul now moves to a manifesto of gratitude. I love seeing how Paul, now thinking about his brothers and sisters in Rome, expresses gratitude to God and gratitude for them. He is showing what it is to be a called out one from whom Gratitude overflows. Some of you really wrestle with demonstrating the joy that flows out of gratitude. Thank God we have people in our congregation like Joy who (laughs) manifests joy and what it is to be grateful even in suffering. And I look around this room and see many of you who know the same thing. Some of you, like me, struggle to have a right-mindedness about gratitude and joy day in, day out. And we get pathetically disabled by very first world problems. Anybody feel like that or is it mostly just me? (laughs) Uh, One other hand there, that's good. Um, So gratitude matters. Um, Cicero was somehow, as a uh, 
Roman orator, very detached from Christian worldview, made a profound comment when he said, gratitude is the mother of all the other virtues. And there's a lot in the scripture that suggests that he was touching on something uh, near true. So he says, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually be encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, brothers, that I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He is eager because he's grateful. And, um, and I just want, as we process these words, to consider how our life in the life of this church might be different if we had this kind of gratitude one for the other. If we were longing to be together, if I was longing to be with Craig and with Nancy and with so many dear friends, Sharon, in this room, as I do, by the way. What, what a gift it is to desire just to be in the fellowship and the company of one another. It is part of what sets us apart. It's part of what reflects a grateful heart. And Paul is saying here, by the way, your faith is proclaimed in all the world He's obviously here referring to all the known world where Christianity was spreading so fast. And then he moves to this statement, for God is my witness. In other words, Paul's, Paul's saying, I, I, I'm making a point to you um, that I want you to understand in the context of me making a declaration before God. I've seen some commentators who really wrestle with this and say Paul's violating um, biblical injunctions against taking an oath. But if we look at the, um, at the Westminster Confession, yeah, where, thought I had that here. Yes, I don't. There we go. If we look at um, chapter 22 of lawful oaths and vows, um, we're reminded that a lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein a Upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. So Paul is clearly in this context um, trying to make a very important point. He says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He is saying, 
I am with you in spirit. And I mean that. I want you to really understand, I am with you in spirit. I I say this because the number of times in a day that something comes across Slack, which is the internal communications portal that we use to process prayer requests coming through the church. Marshall can attest to this, but the number of times each day somebody is asking for prayer, aside from the things that we're trying to be intentional about praying for, can make some of us say, I'll pray for you. Oh, I'll be praying. Yeah, I'm, gosh, I'm with you in spirit. And we're really not. Those are hard words, but to me, I have had to make a sort of oath before God, just me before God, that when I tell somebody I'm praying for them, I'm stopping right then and I'm praying for them and trying to use that as an opportunity to continue praying. And I, I, I struggle with this. And so the earnestness that Paul is communicating to us here um, is, a, is a gift that ought to make all of us uh, think and reflect how we make statements like that before other people. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What a goal it is that each time we press up in this family of families, in this body of believers, in this part of Christ's bride, the church, If we were intentional about trying to mutually encourage one another through some comment, some word of affirmation, as we're working to build up one another's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in God's providence in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now we move to the last section of this first chapter. In many of your Bibles, the heading is the righteous shall live by faith. To me, this third section is sort of a manifesto of or a manifesto for proclamation. And it begins with this statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Again, convicting words, convicting words. How often do we really act in a way that manifests the fact that we feel ashamed of the gospel. I went to Luther on this because I thought, you know, it's interesting. Martin Luther, whose commentary I also commend to you, commentary on the Romans from Martin Luther, I I thought his commentary might be particularly interesting 
on this statement because Luther, in many ways, was a mess. You know, he was a man who really struggled with his sinful flesh. He, he loved a lot of the vices that have plagued men down through history. Wine, women, and song. Luther um, is therefore such a glorious example of what it is to come face-to-face with gospel reality. The gospel, three words, God saves sinners. And when you get that, when you really get it, you want not to be ashamed, but instead to proclaim whenever you can. But think about Luther. He's in the context of quite the fraternity. It was the fraternity of his day. He was a monk among monks in the church among churches in that day. So when he's giving commentary on the words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, perhaps in anticipation of his encounter at the Diet of Worms, more likely, in fact, in fact, after uh, his appearance before the church where he's speaking on behalf of the gospel. Um, he had to process those words interestingly. One of the quotes that I pulled out of the commentary from Luther on that statement was this. So then the verdict holds. He who believes the gospel must become weak and foolish before men in order that he might become strong and wise in the power and wisdom of God. So then the verdict holds. Aren't those powerful words? So then the verdict holds. He who believes the gospel must become weak and foolish before men in order that he might become strong and wise in the power and wisdom of God. Those are remarkable words. For I am not ashamed. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is being referred to here? For it, for the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God saves sinners. Jews first, and also to the Greek and the barbarians like us. <laughs> Don't you like that word, barbarians? When I went on my honeymoon with Rachel, I took one book with me. She allowed me to take one book. And, <laughs> and it was George Gilder's book, Men and Marriage. The reason why she allowed me to take it is because it had marriage in the title. I still, I still remember reading it. But on the opening page of that great book, Gilder says, the one enduring challenge of every, situa- every civilization is to tame the barbarian. And the barbarian, he says, <clears throat> is and always has been the single male. And then he goes on to you know, establish his thesis, crime, 
um, uh, like every major metric, what marriage does in taming a man and the importance of it for civilized culture. So I, I, I've always loved that term, barbarian, and it reminds me uh, that, but by God, there go I. But in a sense, we're, we're in this group to the Jew and also to the Greek and to the barbarians like us. The gospel, God saves sinners, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that word power, dunamis, in the Greek, dunamis, literally means dynamite. I mean, it means, like, change. Like, significant, explosive change. That's what the power of the gospel is to be in each one of us. Then these words, for it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Is there any phrase in that statement that confuses or troubles any of you? From faith for faith actually made me take pause. And I went back and looked at a number of different theologians and how they understood that. And I love what St. Augustine said. He said this, from the faith of those who confess it with the mouth to the faith of those who actually obey it. The obedience of faith. Sproul loves this interpretation of this um, particular phrase, from faith to faith. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. just a, uh, a powerful thing to consider the gospel taking root in us, calling us further up and further in to life in Christ, life with Christ, life for Christ. And then these last words, for, Paul says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, ironically, going to our previous point with regard to our friend, Andy Stanley, and others who are calling us all to unhinge the gospel from the vagaries of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, does anyone know where Paul summarizes the gospel saying the righteous shall live by faith comes from? Very good, Steve Habakkuk 2, verses 3 to 4, which in context says this. Imagine this. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but, but, there's a hinge that's worth keeping, but the just shall live by faith. Another way of looking at this uh, is given us by Luther, who 
in talking about righteousness and God's righteousness and the call to understand it and to protect it from our own attempts at righteousness. Luther says this, and in the church we declare that our righteousness and wisdom are in vain. Now some of you are checking out saying, wait, 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 righteousness and wisdom, that's good stuff. That's what the church is about. But watch what he's saying. In the church we declare that our righteousness and wisdom are in vain so that we must neither praise nor extol them by false pretense. Everything turns about the point that our righteousness and wisdom must be destroyed, rooted out of our hearts and our self-complacent minds. God thus speaks through Jeremiah. I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, namely everything, all righteousness that is our own and in which we glory, to conversely build and to plant, namely everything, all righteousness that is outside us and from Christ. One of the profound marks of the truth of the gospel in relation to all other religious points of view is that if you believe that there is no God or you don't care, the more you can do and in your own Darwinian way set yourself up to survive the longest I suppose. You have reason to be proud. I don't know many atheists who are not proud. I don't know any atheists who aren't proud. I don't know any atheists who aren't angry either. That classic line, there is no God and I hate him. (laughs) But then on the other hand of the religious spectrum, you have those who believe that there is a God And we have to earn his favor. Judaism, right? Islam, all the great religions. In fact, many who call themselves Christians operate on this same basis. There is a God, and I must earn his favor. Guess what? Those people, the more that they do, be they Muslim, Jewish, Christian, whatever, those of the new environmentalist pagan religion, they're all about using less plastic or whatever. You know, they're keeping score too. They want to be on the good side. And the more that they do, the more that they feel proud. And then comes the gospel. Glories of the gospel. There is a God. You can never earn his favor. Another who was perfectly righteous and yet took the penalty for our unrighteousness has won it for us. And we can be among those who know what it is to be under the mercy to be viewed through the righteousness of another who is Christ.
our pastor, Neil Stewart, in every correspondence that I've received to him, ends the correspondence with two words. Anybody know? Press on. Press on. So as we consider this first part of Romans chapter 1, and before we go to some opportunity here for questions, I want you to consider what it is to press on in laying hold to your identity in Christ. Are you a doulos of Christ? And if you are, have you considered what that means in terms of your identity being in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ? Secondly, to press on in gratitude. To be marked by one in relation to your wife, in relation to your children, in relation to your brothers and sisters in Christ at church, your acquaintances in the workplace, as you're driving to work. (laughs) Acquaintances are not... How are you forming yourself spiritually to press on in gratitude? And how are you pressing on in carrying the manifesto to proclaim the good news which has come to you? That's what Paul brings us in this first part of Romans chapter 1. It is a great dance between orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthokresis, it is gospel life. Press on.